0: Good to see you back here again this week. Tonight is probably what has become the toughest topic and week for me. Um, you know, I think of vocation. I think of abortion, the sanctity of life, dating, marriage. We've done entertainment, money, but the topic of divorce and remarriage uh, is probably one of the most sensitive discussions that you can find among both believers and non-believers, probably because uh, it impacts everybody. So I think if we were all to stop and think about um, our lives and our circle of friends and family, maybe we don't have to go beyond ourselves to see people who have been a part of divorce or remarriage. Maybe uh, you go to your immediate family. Maybe you go to extended family or friends. But the reality is we all probably know and have experienced what can happen as a result of a divorce and remarriage. So it's it's tough. It's a sensitive subject. And it involves all kinds of unique situations and extremes. Uh, no one divorce is really the same, although arguably it all comes from the same type of wicked heart. Um, godly men and women have been split on parts of the issues of marriage and or divorce and remarriage for over 2,000 years. This is not something that's a new discussion today. They've been dealing with it ever since the Jews uh, all the way back in Moses' time. Many men and women in our own church have been divorced and, have, and many have been remarried. There tends to be so many intense circumstances too that comes along with divorce specifically that would cause us to want to continue to move the lines of what we believe is acceptable and unacceptable when it comes to divorce. Uh, if you think about it honestly and subjectively, people are selfish and man-centered. And this tends to be the cause of many uh, divorces as well at some point in, in the marriage. Um, it's easy to be offended with this subject. So I, I'm i asking for your grace towards me tonight. Especially if I say something that you may not agree with um, and I'm also asking you to maybe be sensitive to whether or not what you believed or thought about this subject has been biblical. Uh, and, and I don't say that in any kind of arrogant way. My mind has changed on this subject. It's actually changed a couple times. Um, but it's, it's changed a couple times not because of study or seeking counsel. It's changed because of circumstances in my life of where, I've been influenced by it or I've been surrounded by people I really care for. And so I've wanted to kind of change my views or become more strict or become uh, less strict or, or whatever. Uh, I do believe, I, I've actually been studying for this week for probably about five months. So this is this has probably been the number one subject um, in regards to my study and reading and praying and seeking counsel and looking at the Word of God, our elders themselves have spent hours upon hours upon hours discussing the subject both in groups and via emails and phone conversations and writings and seeking counsel. So uh, we've purposely left this till now so that it would be a prepared message, that it would be a gracious message, and that it would be one that has sought a lot of counsel and study. But we've also waited for it to be at the end of our marriage three-week series of Cultivating the Biblical Word of, of Marriage because um, we, we thought it was important that you understood what the Bible says about marriage, and that would then transform how you view uh, uh, seeking and pursuing marriage. And now that you have both those in mind, now let's look at what the Bible says when what God expects and commands is broken. And how do we as believers live, think, act in regards to that. So I want to be very clear tonight. I do have my own bias. Like anytime anybody will speak about any subject, you're going to have your own bias. Uh, There will probably be times tonight where you sense my own convictions coming out. I will make it abundantly clear at the end of the evening where I stand, uh, just so you are, are clear with that. But I do want you to know that I could very well be wrong in some places, and I own that. I accept that. Uh, we said at the beginning that those who will be speaking this semester are fallible. We're, we're, we're human, fallen, sinful men just like everybody else. So, you know, I look at this subject and I've realized in my study there are unbelievably smart, intelligent, godly men and women who disagree when it comes to divorce and remarriage. Uh, you know, I think of two of the strongest influences. In my own study over the last few years, I look at like a John MacArthur. Uh, John MacArthur allows, and what he would call biblical exceptions for being divorced and remarrying. You've got John Piper um, who says no, never, um, and you can't even be remarried. Uh, you've got all kinds of people who fall in both of those places and you know this goes all the way back to or- origin has some if you remember when we talked about church history origin the first uh, four centuries the patrician period he had a lot of thoughts and discussions about divorce and remarriage the the jews in the first century how this translated into the nation so there there's a lot that that has been discussed about this so because of this Uh, And because more than likely, many of us are coming in tonight with our own presuppositions about the subject, our own experiences, and our own bias, what I want to do is I want to look at this subject from a few different angles. And I want to start and end in specific ways. I want to begin this evening with what the Bible says, just subjectively. I'm not going to interject my thoughts um, or or preach them. We're just going to read the text and we're going to ask ourselves, does this text uh, allow for divorce or remarriage? Yes or no? And we will put these three texts in, um, in columns. It would, uh, what I'm going to hand out to you this evening at the end, you've got a two-page handout tonight that you're taking home with you. Oh, yeah. So uh, And I actually have this graph that I, I made that will be on the paper for you so you can see the text. But we're gonna, we're going to say what... Does the Bible say, and we'll put text where it says, okay, no, you cannot divorce, you cannot remarry, or yes, you can divorce, or yes, you can remarry. We're going to start there, and then we're going to move from there to say, okay, where do Christians, generally Protestants, Evangelicals, generally where do we agree with this subject? Because there's a lot of places where we agree with divorce and remarriage. So let's start there, and then we will go thirdly to, okay, where do we disagree where, where's the discussion? Is there an allowance for divorce? If there is, and people believe that, obviously, what are the reasons? Some say two, some say four, some say four is in the two. Um, and then, what about if there's not? And, and where do you pull that? And what's your conviction based on the scripture? And then we're going to end, fourthly, with highlighting our progression from the last few weeks. And really getting down to the heart of the issue of divorce and remarriage and the gospel in all this, okay? All right, so we're going to begin with what do the scriptures say. Well, the scriptures say a lot. If you have your Bible, get out your Bible. We are about to read a lot and flip around. If you have a Bible app, get the Bible app out. Um, I Also, for time's sake, we're going to flip and read quickly. So if you're a good flipper, awesome. If it takes you a while, Uh, get there when you can, or you can maybe just listen. Again, I will give you all of these passages. If you have a Bible app, you should have no problem. Flippity-flip-flip-flip, okay? The Bible says a lot about divorce and remarriage. Um, We're going to actually put all of these verses on the screen, and we're going to give reasons for divorce and remarriage, divorce and remarriage. Okay, so uh, is Melissa back there? No? Yes? Heather. Hi, Heather. Can you hit that slide for me? All right, now, this is not... Very appealing to the eye, okay? On, on your take home, you'll see this. It's, but it's difficult to put that up here and be able to have all the scriptures, etc. So I have white, I have yellow, I have pinkish, however you want to I'll look at that. So don't judge me by how that slide looks, but this will at least allow you to do it. If you are blind and you can't see all the small ink, uh, then don't worry, I will, I'll read it for you. Alright, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 19 first. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 19. And we're going to read verses and marries another commits adultery. Now, there's a number of ways to read this passage. We're going to talk about that. I also have asterisks up here. If you notice the first column, no divorce, remarriage, I have remarriage as an asterisk because even those who believe um, in no divorce or remarriage affirm that if you're a widow or widower, you can. Right. So that's clear. That's one of the areas that we agree on. You'll see that in a second. That if you are indeed a widow or a widower, you can remarry. So we also have an asterisk here in this passage because you can see in verse 9, whoever divorces his wife, Jesus says, except for what? Sexual immorality, and marries another commits adultery. So what you have here is what is perceived to be an exception clause. Hence, we are putting it allows divorce. Hence, you also see, and marries another. So the assumption here, even for those who uh, affirm that this is an exception clause, you can divorce, would affirm you can be remarried too, because it implies it here in this text. Hence, this allows remarriage. But I also have it in the no divorce and no remarriage, because those who hold to the view that you cannot biblically um, look at this passage in a very specific context, which we will as well, and we'll talk about that when we get there. All right, I said we're just... Going to be subjective here. Let's go to Malachi chapter 2, verse 14. Malachi. This might be the first time we've read from Malachi at Refuge. Verse 14. But you say, Why does he not? I'm sorry, we're going to read, uh, yeah, 14 through 16. Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. By the way, just so you know, what was happening is these Jewish men were growing old with their wives. The wives are going out of childbearing years and were not gratifying these men sexually as much as they would have liked anymore. So, what they were doing is leaving their wives and going for younger women for childbearing and for sexual satisfaction. Verse 15 Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Therefore we have, okay, this, this shows us there is no really ability to divorce or to remarry. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to begin in verse 8 and read through verse 16. To the unmarried and the widows I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise exercise self-control, they should marry for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So here we have verse 8 and 9. Let's pause and look at that. This is allowing remarriage and it's allowing remarriage for whom? Widows, young widows specifically, okay? Then you look at verses 10 and 11. 10-11, to the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. So you see here, and we're going to talk about it with the two views, some people look at this passage and say, this does not say it's okay to remarry, hence no divorce, remarriage, verse 10-11. But also, it seems like there is an exception If she does. Now, is that an allowance? Is that prescriptive or is it descriptive? We'll talk about that. And therefore, that is also in the allows divorce column. If you read on, uh, we'll go to verse 15. Uh, We'll read 12 through 16. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. So that here you have an unequal yoke and Paul's saying, don't get a divorce. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Same thing. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. This is not a salvific term, just so you know. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, but God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So in verse 15, you can see there's an allowance for divorce. Hence, we have it here in the divorce column. But it's based on the unbeliever leaving the believer. That's important to note. All right, I want you now in the same chapter to flip all the way. And by the way, verse 12 through 14 shows that even in unequally yoke, you should not divorce. Hence, verse 12 through 14 is on the no divorce or remarriage side. Let's go to verse 39 in this chapter. Verse 39 of 1 Corinthians 7 says, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Now, verse 39 shows no, you cannot divorce. It does allow for remarriage, hence in the remarriage, based on what? The death of a spouse. Okay? So if they become a widow or a widower. All right. I want you um, to now go. I'm going to do this on purpose, although it's a little out of order there. I want you to go back to Matthew chapter 5. We looked at how in Matthew chapter 19 it seems like Jesus is allowing divorce based on sexual immorality. You see this also in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 through 32. Matthew 5, 31 through 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, I have, this does not allow, um, or this, many people believe that this does not allow, because it's the same context of how they interpret Matthew 19. We'll look at that. But then you also see, once again, sexual immorality. And you also see, so for divorce, but you also see potential of remarriage. We will, again, as I mentioned, discuss this in a little bit. We're just reading subjectively the passages right now. All right, but now, I want you to look at the Matthew 19 Pharisees coming. Don't go to Matthew 19. The Pharisees coming to Jesus, asking him about divorce. I want you to notice the Mark account of this. And see where it's different than Matthew. So let's go to Mark. Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 9 are pretty much the exact same thing that you're going to find in Matthew 19. But you're going to notice Jesus' response at the end is different. Matthew 10, verse 10. In the house of the disciples, again asked him about this matter. And he said to them, "'Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her.' And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. What's left out in the Mark passage from the Matthew passage? Except for sexual immorality. Now, this is the same account. But Mark does not have the exception clause that Matthew gives. We'll talk about this. Also, let's read what it says in Luke about this. What does Jesus say in Luke? Go to Luke 16. Hence, by the way, we have that in the no divorce or remarriage category. Let's go to Luke 16. Luke 16, verse 18. Jesus says, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. What does it leave out? Sexual immorality. Now, this is not the same account per se as Matthew and Mark, but it is Jesus' teaching. It could be maybe more comparative with Matthew 5, but it still leaves out what Matthew 5 includes in his teaching of sexual immorality. Now, many people would look at this and say, okay, what this is saying is you can't marry another, not that you can't divorce. Okay? Because everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. He who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. But this, the question is, is this saying, no, you can't get a divorce? We'll talk about that as well. I want you to go to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. Where Paul gives the exception of abandonment or the unbeliever leaving, Paul does not give that exception here in Romans 7 and says, If you go after another man or woman, while your husband or your spouse is still alive, which you're bound to, you are committing adultery. So Romans chapter seven, verse two and three is among the no divorce, specifically no remarriage. Okay? All right, now let's look at Deuteronomy chapter twenty-four. Deuteronomy chapter 24, and we're going to read verses 1 through 4. How you doing? You following? Confused yet? (laughs) You can. You can't. Maybe you can. Maybe you can. not Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. Laws concerning divorce. When a man takes a wife, this is confusing, so you've got to stay along. When a man takes a wife and marries her, If then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes to her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, okay, so they've divorced, he sends her out, she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man, the the new husband, hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, a second divorce, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, her former husband who sent her away, the first one, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. Meaning she has engaged in a sexual relation with the latter husband. First husband cannot take her back. For that is an abomination before the Lord. You shall not bring sin upon the land that your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, I did make a typo. Because it seems like this allows for divorce in Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. But the argument is actually for those who reject Uh, biblical accounts of marriage, that this should actually be in no divorce or remarriage as well because what you see is that this, again, is more descriptive rather than prescriptive. What Moses is doing is saying if there is a divorce, not saying you can, if there is, he provides laws and says you should not then remarry back because you'll be falling into adultery. So this isn't a you can do this, but rather if this happens, this is what should happen, and you should not do this. All right, now I want you to look at Exodus, chapter 21, verses 10 through 11. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment or money. This is where some will say, okay, we have an exception that goes beyond sexual morality and beyond abandonment or desertion. This goes to neglect. So this seems to allow for divorce in the context of not fulfilling the command of taking care of your spouse. We will also talk about this. Now I want you to go to 1 Timothy 5.14. This is the last passage we'll look at right now, although there are a couple more that we will touch base on throughout this evening 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 14 <clears throat> So I would have younger widows marry bear children manage their households and give the adversary no occasion for slander so Paul exhorts that young widows should remarry and hence you have in the remarriage but the context here is if they are what a widow okay there's one more passage we're going to look at, Deuteronomy 22. But we're going to talk about that in a little bit. You'll see that on your take home as well. The whole chapter really is important for us. But what you see here <laughs> is a lot of wrestling. Would you agree? You can also see why this has been a debate and why godly men and women have landed on both sides for over 2,000 years, really pushing 6,000 years. Um, How are we to interpret these passages? Is there a difference between the Old Testament passages and the New Testament passages? Is it carryover? If what was prescribed or allowed or described in the Old Testament, is it permissible for now us in the New Covenant? It seems like sometimes Paul and Jesus say yes to divorce and remarriage, and at other times they, Jesus and Paul, say absolutely not. So which text are we supposed to cling to and pull? Which text are we supposed to uh, define and discern the other passages by? Can we get divorced or can't we get divorced? Divorce, can we get remarried? Can we not be remarried? We're going to discuss all of that in a few. But before we get to that part, I want to go to our second part tonight, and that is this. Okay, after reading all of that, where do Christians agree? Because reading that does give a lot of area where we can come together and say, okay, it's clear among these that there are invalid grounds for divorce, and there are invalid grounds for remarriage. So let's talk about that. So our second portion, where do Christians agree? Well, Um, The list I'm about to give you is from Jim Newheiser's book right here, actually, that I'm going to read uh, an excerpt out of here in a little bit. Uh, This is called Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage. It's one of about, well, it's one of a number of books that I read. It's an excellent book. I recommend this highly. It has a bunch of, it's 40 chapters, and the 40 chapters are essentially questions. This has to do with dating, marriage, uh, sex in marriage, birth control, all those types of things, and then divorce and remarriage as well. He's actually the guy who taught your biblical counseling thing, right? Yeah, he's a part part of that group. I noticed that the notes that I, you had from that were, were the same guy. So I highly recommend um, this book. I actually disagree with his ultimate conclusion. Um, but I find him to be very helpful, very scholarly, godly, and compassionate with conviction. So just when it comes to a couple specific things, I, 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 I don't confirm completely. But I would highly recommend this to anybody. And anybody going into the pastorate, Um, or to be an elder, or in any kind of ministry that would be influenced by this, this is probably a must-buy. So thanks for the recommendation, Ellen. He says in this book that there are ways that we uh, all agree of invalid grounds for divorce. He said this in this counseling session as well. So here's an invalid ground for divorce. Number one, my spouse isn't a Christian, or I wasn't a Christian when I married my spouse. This is not a valid reason to get a divorce, Uh, The same thing was happening in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 7, we just read it, and Paul commanded them to remain in the marriage if the spouse was willing, okay? A second invalid ground for divorce, and ironically, apparently this does happen uh, when people say, well, we weren't married in a church, so it's not a real marriage before God, and that's not the case at all. Covenants before God don't have to be by a Christian minister or in a church. You know, you look at marriage, it's a It's a gift of common grace. Non-believers can be married, and that marriage is valid and held to the same standards, though it's impossible to meet those standards apart from the Holy Spirit. Number three, an invalid ground for divorce. I need to get out for the sake of my kids. Now, we're going to talk about if there are legitimate concerns for safety and abuse and things like that later on, but... Um, this is not a reason to get out of divorce. God actually may perhaps use your faithfulness to be a light in the life of your kids or even your spouse. A fourth and valid ground for divorce, my spouse is a huge disappointment. He's a poor provider. Or she doesn't take care of herself physically. Or I would have never married this person if I would have known what I was getting myself into. Or I deserve better, and the list can go on and on. The fact is that many believers remain married Not because they think they are getting a great deal out of it, but because they seek to honor God and trust that his way is best. If you find yourself in a situation that wasn't all bells and whistles like you expected it to, this is not valid rounds for divorce. There's agreement widespread among evangelicals of that. Another one, invalid reason number five, we are no longer in love. This is not criteria for remaining married. In Scripture, love is not merely a romantic or passionate feeling. Love involves a deliberate commitment to the good of another person for the glory of God. Number six, an invalid reason for divorce. I married the wrong person, or we were too young. Now, it is true, we should indeed confess sin if we came into marriage sinfully or unwisely, but we should not compound that sin with more sin. And to think that you missed out on your soulmate or the right one is, as Jim Newheiser says, worldly mysticism with no scriptural foundation. You must then trust in Romans 8.28 and God's sovereignty. Number seven, an invalid ground for divorce. I owe it to myself to be happy. This is probably the leading cause of divorce today, a pursuit of happiness, and it's Sadly celebrated among people. This is not something to celebrate. What this does is it changes the answer to the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The first question the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, What is the chief end of man? The answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Or Piper will say, Glorify God by enjoying him forever. Uh, the way that people would use grounds for the divorce is, I owe it to myself to be happy, would answer this question, What's the chief end of man? To be happy. And that is a cultural worldview um, that really makes no sense and has no foundation. And really, as we've shown over probably 25 weeks, comes really from uh, an attitude of slavery and blindness. Number eight, an invalid reason for divorce that all would agree with across the board. All my friends and family say I should leave. It is common... For worldly friends and family to offer marital advice based on unbiblical reasons. This is a common thing. This does not mean that we should do it. We need to be careful to choose wise, godly counselors. Number, ninth, or number nine, uh, a ninth invalid reason for divorce, God will forgive me. This is an abuse of grace. It's presuming upon God's grace. Romans 2 warns about this. uh, Lest we be judged and store up wrath for ourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Not to presume upon his kindness and forbearance, but to see that it is to lead us to repentance. Romans 6, Paul says, shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? No. In fact, a person who willfully falls into a sin, just banking on God's grace, and this is a, a habit, a lifestyle, is actually showing fruit that they do not desire Christ and are not converted. Uh, So that's important to understand. God's grace is great, but believers are not to presume upon it or abuse it. There are two other widespread agreements among evangelicals and Protestants. Number one, that the marriage covenant ends with the death of a spouse, thus the surviving spouse is free to remarry. Uh, Everybody agrees with that, that if if um, Abigail and I, if, if I was to die tomorrow, Abigail would be free to marry. She would not be bound by that covenant anymore because I have ceased to exist on this earth. Number two is that those who have do- divorced without proper biblical grounds, have you defined that? They sin in their divorce, and they sin if they remarry someone else. So if there's unbiblical reasons, so if you look at where people would permit remarriage and divorce, they would base it. Those who affirm this, they base it on the scripture we talked about, namely sexual immorality, namely uh, abandonment or desertion, namely um, uh, neglect, okay? But they would say outside of that, any reason to divorce is sinful and therefore to remarry would also be sinful and adultery as well. Okay, so this is where Christians agree. Now we get to the nitty-gritty. Since we've discussed where the bulk of believers agree today, I want to discuss now the areas where Christians disagree. I want to specifically do so by um, showing uh, the main passages that we looked at. Where where do some Christians allow for divorce, and where do some allow for remarriage? Um, There are two camps, typically, here. What you have is the permanence view. The permanence view holds this first column. There's no divorce that is acceptable in Scripture, there's no remarriage that is acceptable in Scripture except for death of a spouse, if you're a widow or a widower. This is called permanence. And it's the sense that the one flesh union set by God is permanent. Like Jesus says, therefore, what God has put together, no man separate. Let no man separate. No man can separate, they would argue. that Go back to what uh, the perfect will of God is in Genesis chapter 2, that you're joined together. God doesn't. As long as you're living and breathing, you are joined to that person. It's permanent permissive is that there is permission to divorce or to remarry based on some biblical exceptions, okay? Make sense? So these are the two views and there is some wiggle room within these views but for the most part, they tend to hold to what we'll discuss. What I want to do is I want to give the exception clauses. All right, the sexual morality, the abandonment, the neglect. I want to talk about these, talk about why those who uh, permit that you can get a divorce or remarry based on these, why they believe that, how they interpret the text. And then I want to take those same arguments and I want to show you what the permanent view is based on that, okay? So if you look back at Matthew chapter 19, this is the biggest one, where Jesus says in verse 9, all right, and, and by the way, the next like three paragraphs that I read are really chewy, and I tried as well as I possibly could to not make it chewy. I retyped it, I rethought it, and it's just chewy. So what I'm going to ask is, dear Lord, Spirit, help us to understand, help us to hear and see um, and make sense of this. Okay, Matthew 19:9. 9, Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. This goes in line with what you see in Deuteronomy 24, okay? And if you remember in Deuteronomy 24, this is what Jesus is referring to in Matthew 19. Moses allowed for a grant of divorce. But did he allow, is the question, or was he simply describing that the man sent a letter of divorce, and she went off, married the second husband, came back after his death. She's not permitted to go back to the first marriage because she's committed adultery. This is... This is what the understanding is here that it's sexual morality. She's now been defiled by the second marriage. Well, this says a lot about what Moses is saying. And for those who would say, see, Moses is allowing for a divorce here. Now wait a second, if he's allowing for a divorce in the second marriage, the second marriage has ended and he ends up dying, she should be free. As a widow to now come back and remarry the first husband, but she 's defiled, Moses says, which shows you that it 's actually not an acceptable thing that she divorced in the first place. Moses mentions defilement and indecency, which implies sexual morality. Now, the word that Jesus uses here in Matthew nineteen and in matthew five verse thirty one through thirty two we also looked at that, which says basically the same thing, except for sexual morality. He's using the word porneia. He's not using the word for adultery. This is important. He uses the word porneia not for adultery. He uses the word adultery in Matthew 15. So Jesus knows the word. He just didn't use it here. It's the word for sexual immorality. Now... He's saying there's ground for divorce based on porneia, or sexual morality. This is the bulk of the argument for divorce, for those who are the permissive uh, view, that Jesus is clearly saying in Matthew 5 and 19, how can you argue it? How how can you argue it? Jesus is saying, except in the case of sexual morality. And and for many people, they go, that's all you need to know because it came out of Jesus' mouth. Like, end of discussion. So, whatever Paul says, or Moses says, it's fulfilled in Jesus. This is the end of the discussion but further study is required. Further study is required. There are many people who heard Jesus and did not understand what he was saying. Remember, Jesus often spoke in parables. He often hid things from people. Pharisees had ears and did not hear eyes and did not see. Even his disciples sometimes did not understand what was actually taking place. So it's important that we further study what Jesus is saying, especially since there seems to be other areas like the Mark account and the Luke account, which Jesus does not say except for sexual immorality. So why do you see this in Matthew? Now, from the permanence view, where they are saying, they would say, Jesus is not allowing for sexual morality for divorce. You would say, well, how on earth are they getting that? They would note several things. First, as I mentioned, the Matthew account is the only account in the Gospel that records Jesus giving the exception of sexual immorality. You do not find it in Mark and Luke. Why? Well, this goes hand in hand with Jesus' use of the word porneia and the audience of Matthew. Remember, the account of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, is written to whom? The Jews. The Jews were the ones who practiced the betrothal. Hence, you see in Deuteronomy 20, 22 and Deuteronomy 24, the betrothal. You also see Paul referencing this in 1 Corinthians 7. So, for example, the word that Jesus uses in Matthew 19 is the same context of what we actually see used in Matthew 1, 18 through 18-19. Now, wait a second. What happens in Matthew 1, 18 through 18-19? Well, let's flip and find out. This is important. Now, what do we know about this betrothal period of a man and a woman in the Jewish culture? Are they married yet? They are not legally married. It is a betrothal, it is like an engagement. Now, they have come into covenant with one another in the sense that they're being set aside and prepared for marriage. It would be like a way better version of our engagement. But it's crucial, though they are referenced here as husband and wife, they are—they have not come together yet. They have not consummated the marriage. They have not had the appropriate ceremony. And this is important because Joseph wants to divorce her quietly, divorce the betrothal. We'll talk about why you can even divorce an engagement here in a second. Because they hadn't been permitted to do so yet. They're not officially married. So all of a sudden he finds out she's pregnant. He assumes from what? Tornea, sexual immorality. So he seeks to divorce her quietly. Now here is something that is really important for us. This shows us that the Jewish culture understands this sexual immorality and certificate of do- divorce differently from the rest of the world. Why? Because you could divorce during the patrothal period. Hence, Joseph would have been permitted and allowed to separate from Mary because she broke the covenant before they came in and consummated their marriage, and it was official. Now, ironically, the Matthew 1 account of Joseph and Mary is the only account of the sexual morality question and potential of divorce. You don't find it in Mark, Luke, or John. Why is that significant? Because Matthew is also the only time that you see Jesus say, Except for sexual immorality, pornea, not adultery, Matthew 15, but pornea, what you find in Matthew chapter 1 between Joseph, or between Joseph assuming of Mary. The point here is that those who hold to the permanence view will say there's a very specific reason that Jesus gave this clause in Matthew. Matthew, who is a Jew writing to the Jews, would have shown this because according to Deuteronomy 24 and 22, we'll look at in a second, according to the betrothal period, Joseph and Mary, not yet married, but set apart for each other, being prepared, right, in this covenant, this betrothal union, Joseph would be permitted to leave her because of sexual immorality. We'll see this even more specifically in just a second in Deuteronomy chapter 22. Let's go there now. Deuteronomy chapter 22. We're going to read a lot here. We're going to read verses 13 through 30. Okay, you ready? Now I want you to pay attention to what is taking place here. If any man takes a wife and goes into her and then hates her and accuses her of misconduct and brings a bad name upon her, saying, I took this woman and when I came near her, I did not find in her evidence of virginity. Then the father of the young woman and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of her virginity, to the elders in the city of the city in the gate. And the father of the young woman shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter this man to marry, and he hates her. And behold, he has accused her of misconduct, saying, I did not find in your daughter evidence of virginity. And yet this is the evidence of my, fa- my daughter's virginity. And they shall spread the cloak before the elders of the city. Then the elders of that city shall take the man and whip him and they shall find him a hundred shekels of silver and give them to the father of the young woman because he has brought a bad name upon a virgin of Israel and she shall be his wife. He may not divorce her all his days. Pause. So this is the first example. Let me just explain this in case you're not understanding. All right, let's say there's a man and a woman He all of a sudden becomes unhappy with her. He makes up a lie that all of a sudden I got her and she wasn't a virgin. How do you know? Well, the Jewish practice, many of you may know, I don't mean to be gross or anything, but this is appropriate for the context. They would have uh, intercourse. They would have sex on the night where they consummate the marriage on a sheet. And if the woman was a virgin, there would be blood. And the father, the family would come in and take the sheet afterwards and keep it. And it is proof that she was indeed a virgin and they would hold on to it. Hence, in this case, if they're accused that this woman is sexually immoral, or immoral because you'll find out what the punishment is here in a second, they have proof to come and say, here's the sheet. He's lying. And what happens is, if this happens, if the husband is lying about a wife because he just is making up some rule and wants to be free from her, and I'll show you what that means in a second, and they come and they show, no, she was a marriage, you see the punishment is that he will have to pay 100 shekels He's brought a bad name upon the virgin, and she shall be his wife, and he may not, what? He may not divorce her all his days. All right, now here's the second part, verse 20. But if the thing is true, if she was not a virgin, the evidence of virginity was not found in the young woman, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall, what? Stone her to death with stones because she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now, this is why the the husband would want to lie about his wife if he didn't find her pleasing anymore. Because if they found, okay, and somehow he was able to uh, confiscate the evidence that she was a virgin or whatever, and she was found guilty, she's killed, he's now permitted to what? Marry again. Now we have another situation. Verse 22. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, now we have adultery, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. You shall purge the evil from Israel. Verse 23, another example. If there is a betrothed virgin, okay, so this, notice this. This is important the Jewish context. She is a betrothed what? Virgin. She is not married yet. This is like Mary. And a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city. You shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife, you shall purge the evil from your midst. In other words, she was not raped because she's in the middle of the city. She's within shouting distance. And if she was being raped, she could cry out somebody who would come to her help, and she would not be executed, essentially. In other words, it's saying she voluntarily was having sex with another man committing adultery in the sense of she's betrothed to somebody else. Hence why Joseph wanted to do it quietly as to not shame Mary. Amazing, right? He didn't want her to be stoned. Verse 25, another instance, situation. But if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed, and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. You shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense, punishable by death, for this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor because he met her in the open country, and though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. This would be rape. He dies. She does not. Another example, verse 28. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed, now watch this. This is interesting. If a man meets a woman who is, or a virgin who is not betrothed, and seizes her and lies with her, and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife, because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. So you have just now claimed her. Now you've got to go pay the dad. You did this wrongly and correctly. There's a fine. You're being punished for not doing it according to the law and expectations, but she's your wife, and you may not divorce her all your days. So we see Deuteronomy 22 gives no availability for divorce, but actually shows that sexual immorality is punishable by what? Death. This is important because in the Old Testament, if you were caught in sexual immorality, you died. Thus, when Jesus implies the remarrying, and he brings us up now leading in the New Covenant, the implication is you could remarry in the Old Covenant. Why? Because you are now a widow or a widower. This spouse was killed. You're now free to marry. They're punished. Under the new covenant, guess what doesn't happen? We don't condemn sexual immorality by stoning people in the open square anymore. Which means what? You are not a widow or widower. Thus, you are still connected one flesh with this person brought into covenant. So the permanence view looks at Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 of Jesus allowing a case for sexual immorality... And they compare this to, well, duh, because it's the Jews. No wonder Mark and Luke don't talk about this. No wonder you see this nowhere else in Scripture. And no wonder he's quoting from Deuteronomy 24 and Deuteronomy 22 because this was the practice of the Jews. Matthew is the Jewish gospel written to the Jews. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. You see that Joseph would have been allowed under law to divorce his betrothed almost wife because she committed sexual immorality. Makes sense? Is that making sense? Okay, now, those who hold to the exception clause go beyond validating divorce here, and they imply the freedom to remarry, because Jesus says in Matthew 19, and marries another. So those who would permit divorce here, not only permit divorce, but they permit remarriage. Paul speaks of the freedom to marry another, specifically in the case of being a widow. Uh, You think of Deuteronomy 22, which we just uh, looked at. However, in the New Covenant, as we mentioned, the punishment is not death, therefore it does not leave a widow. So, what the permanent view would look at, the permissive view, and say, you are um, not understanding the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. This is important, alright? The permissive side, permitting divorce or marriage here, would say to the permanence view, you are not allowing to understand that there is a difference between old covenant and new covenant, therefore, they should be allowed to remarry and divorce. However, the permissive side uses the same thing when it comes to an unbelieving spouse or remarriage in that context. If you look at first Corinthians chapter 7, I want you to, to go there first Corinthians chapter 7, if you look at verse 12. Through sixteen, we read this already. First Corinthians seven, twelve through sixteen. To the rest, I say, I not the Lord that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a, uh, a husband who is an unbeliever, he consen- consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Okay. Now, they would say. Yes, do not dismiss, do not divorce, stay with. But then they see the exception later on in verse 15. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. They go exactly. They can leave. There is permission for divorce, especially among unequally yoked. But they also would affirm that you can stay together. However, if you look in the Old Testament, you don't need to flip there, but you can read there later. I have this in your notes as well. In Ezra chapter 10 There is a command that God gave against Israel, who was intermarried with people outside of the Jewish faith. And the command was that they had to divorce their spouses. God called for the divorce of Jews and non-Jews. Pagans called them to have a divorce separate from their spouses. My point here is that there are distinctions between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And you have to understand that. You have to, on both sides, on the permissive side and on the permanent side, be willing to say there are clearly differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. For example, we worship today differently than they worshipped in the Old Covenant. That's one example. It doesn't mean that the Old Testament is no longer important, or no longer in play, or that we don't have to obey the Ten Commandments, or that we don't have to come before the Lord in the same way, and same heart of worship. It's not saying any of that. It's not saying the New Covenant is the only thing that we should study and read. What it is showing is that the two work together, ultimately to point to Christ, and Christ has fulfilled it. Now, the only other exception that we see in Scripture that enables you to divorce your spouse is that of abandonment. And for this, we we stay here in 1 Corinthians 7. We just read verse 12, and we looked at verse 15. And what you find here is that Paul seems to permit divorce in cases of abandonment or desertion. One of the spouses leaves, all right? This can also be Defined by many as the Exodus passage, where they were not—they're neglecting them, all right. They're not taking care, etc. We'll look at some of these examples here in a moment. But I want you to look at verse twelve. Verse twelve says, "If any brother has a wife who is what, an unbeliever." Verse thirteen: "If any woman has a husband who is what, an unbeliever." Verse fifteen: "If the what, unbelieving partner." So if you are to affirm divorce is allowed in 1 Corinthians 7, it is only allowed if what? The unbelieving spouse abandons the believer. So if you permit divorce here, you have to understand that this is the context of an unbeliever with a believer. Here Paul says that you'd be free and called to peace by letting the unbeliever leave if they desire Although it is important to know, because many believers can do this and have done this, you can instigate this, or you can manipulate a spouse into leaving you, so that you can justify "I've been abandoned." And Paul rejects this, and God knows the heart of us. So it would be wary. Or I would cause you to be concerned of that. In the case, now you may say, "Okay, but but Dave, what if a believer deserts the spouse? What do you do then?" Well, in that case, if there's two believers. To professing believers. Now, believers, you have to understand, this is the letter to whom? Corinth. It's the church in Corinth. So this letter is written to a church. If two believers are in a marriage, and a professing believer is abandoning the spouse, that professing believer should be brought under church discipline, according to Matthew 18. And what you have in Matthew 18 is a command of how we are to deal with Discipline, you go to the person, next you can go with another person, then you can bring them for the church. But what happens if all this happens, and the person brought under church discipline is rejecting the discipline and still living in willful sin? What Do you remember what you do? You let them go, and you treat them as a what? As a non-believer. So, what's interesting here is, if it's a believer abandoning, you should bring them under church discipline. You should bring them into loving reconciliation with the goal, and if they're restored, praise God. If they're not, they reject it. They don't repent. They're treated as an unbeliever and dismissed from the church. Hence, it would no longer be considered a believer abandoning you, but a what? An unbeliever. Now, the permanence view looks at 1 Corinthians 7, because you say, but wait a second, the permanence view says you can't divorce. But this in 1 Corinthians 7 says very clearly, if the unbeliever wants to leave and does and abandons, let them go. The permanence view points out that verse 11 says, in this case, the unbeliever may leave and abandon you, but you are not free to what? Remarry. So the permanence view would be like Romans 12, 18. Do as much as you can to live peaceably with all, as much as it depends on you. I can control myself. I can't control, ultimately, at the end of the day, anybody else. I can pray. I can pray God's work of grace. I can pray for mercy. I can seek counsel. I can seek church discipline. All that kind of stuff. But if the unbeliever leaves, the unbeliever leaves. But the passage is clear that if the unbeliever leaves, you are not free to remarry. Now this is consistent with what Jesus says in Matthew 5 32. That in the case of sexual morality, but then you would not be allowed to remarry. It's also consistent with 1 Corinthians 7 39. Same passage. Look at verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband, what? Verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only the Lord. This is also consistent with Paul in Romans 7, 2-3, which says, A married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. If her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. If her husband dies, she is free from that law. If she marries another man, she is not an adulteress if the husband dies. So what you see here is the only allowance in Scripture for remarriage across the board is through death. And it is important in this scenario to understand that the believer does not take the initiative... For the divorce. In fact, the believer seeks to reconcile. And actually, what I want you to do is, I want you to look at the allows remarriage. If you look at all of these passages that permit remarrying, only in Matthew do you find the exception of sexual immorality. Every other one is only death. And this is where the two views come. With can you remarry with sexual morality? It comes down with it comes down to how do you read the Matthew account of what Jesus says. If you believe that Matthew nineteen is not in the context for just Jews, that Jesus is not quoting from Deuteronomy twenty two and Deuteronomy twenty four, and you think that sexual morality and the certificate of divorce is different than what he's talking about with Joseph and Mary, then you will find that you believe you can be remarried in that instance. I want to ask you a question though. If you see in 1 Corinthians 7, and this is important, if abandonment, listen to me, if abandonment and neglect in Exodus, if that doesn't allow for remarriage, why would sexual immorality? Do you understand what I'm saying? And we'll look at the Old Testament context here even of God and how he dealt with the Jews. Why why would Paul not mention sexual immorality? Well, why would you not see that in other passages? Why would it not be included in Mark? Why would it not be included in Luke? And, if it's saying, yes, you can, then why wouldn't you be allowed in the case of abandonment? Sexual immorality, in some sense, is, the kind of a, is a kind of abandonment, although it's not the abandonment talking that's being talked about in 1 Corinthians 7. Now, this is where we get to some sticky, um, sticky parts of the conversation. Because you may ask, what about abuse? Can I divorce my spouse, my husband, or my wife if they're beating me? If they're molesting our kids? Uh, if he's got crazy addictions and shows no repentance? What about if he's neglecting us? What about if she's neglecting us? What about radical situation where a spouse gets a life sentence in prison? It's happened. But what do you do when your spouse gets a life sentence in prison? Are you free to divorce and remarry? So, this is where we come to our final section for the night, where I want to discuss the heart of the issue. And I want to give you some clarification on where I stand and what I think this means for us. And I want to be very cautious, I want to be very careful. There's no doubt um, there are some here who have divorced or remarried. And you may wonder, am I living in adultery? You may wonder, should I divorce and reconcile with my first spouse? And the answer that I would give you is no that you are really in a marriage contract. And to end what you're a part of right now uh, would be sin. Um, and, and God's grace and his mercy in the gospel has covered your first sin, which was sin, okay? Uh, and, and if you were abandoned, if you hold the permissive view and you remarried, Depending on what you believe, uh, that may have been sin as well. And, and that's something that you've got to bring for the Lord. And praise God, His grace and the gospel has covered. I think of abortion. I think of all kinds of other sins that people have committed that are radical, that are serious. And God's grace has covered them on the cross. So that I say, amen. Okay? So there, there needs not be any condemnation or judgment tonight. But what we do is with what we have, we move forward and we seek to honor the Lord. No, you should not divorce your second spouse, right now, and re- reconcile with your first spouse. And, and for that, you go to Deuteronomy 24. Because what happened in Deuteronomy 24 with the second spouse, if they divorced or died, what was not permitted to happen? Remarriage to the first one. Some may be wondering if temporary separation in your relationship is biblical in cases of abuse or neglect. Some may wonder where the lines are across the board. How do you define what is sexual morality? Where's the line? Is it pornography? Is it a one-night stand? Is it a strip club? Is it sleeping for several months with somebody? Where's the line with abuse? Is it verbal abuse? Is it throwing something? Is it hitting them? Is it hitting them for a few months? Where is all? Where, where are the lines in these things? There are so many factors. And by the way, because I don't believe you can actually put a line on where that is, is another reason why, cats of the bag, I do hold to the permanence view because I don't think that you can make those lines and, and determinations. There is so much need for grace and compassion in the gospel to be preached in our lives when it comes to marriage, remarriage, and divorce. I'm not able to address every single one of these issues or questions tonight. No doubt there are more. We're going to discuss some of them in small groups. And for those who feel like you have a specific question or need that here in a few moments would not be answered, I would ask that you would come to me sometime in the near future. Either I can give you an answer or point you to godly counsel, uh, pray for you, point you to an elder, or resources. What I want to do is I want to read for you some real-life examples. Uh, Jim Neuheiser, who was a pastor for like three decades, I think, has been involved in counseling for a long time. Here are six examples, real-life examples what well, I'm about to read real-life crazy scenarios that he's dealt with in his years of counseling and pastoring. You ready? Here's one tough case. The wife tells her husband after the first year of marriage that she will never again be willing to have sexual relations, and they will be sleeping in separate bedrooms for the duration of their marriage. She does, however, want to remain legally married. That's a tough situation. Number two... The wife works as a nurse. This is based on real stories. The wife works as a nurse making a good income. The husband refuses to work. He takes her money that she earns and buys illegal drugs to party with his friends. By his own choice, he lives in the garage. Has very little contact with his wife. Does not want to leave her or divorce her, however, because he's living in the house that she's paying for. And he's spending the money that she earns. What do you do? A third example. After 10 years of marriage that were blessed with the births of two children, the husband declares he's a woman trapped inside a man's body. He intends to have a sex change operation, announces that he wants to remain in the marriage with his wife and his children. What do you do? Number four, the husband, without his wife's knowledge, has been involved in illegal financial activities, including investment scams and tax fraud. He's being sent to prison for the next 25 years. The family, meanwhile, is bankrupt and on the verge of homelessness. What do you do? Number five, the wife goes away for months at a time, during which she refuses any contact with her husband. Sooner or later, she returns home, usually when she's run out of money. Wants to live with him again, she won't talk about why she left, won't talk about where she went or whether she might leave again. It's happened several times over the past five years what do you do and finally number 6 the wife sits at home watches television and drinks liquor all day while the husband is at work he tried restricting her access to credit cards and cash but then she actually pawned the silver in the home to get more booze what do you do the this is why the topic of divorce and remarriage is so intense it's why there's such a need of a biblical worldview. It's why there's such a need of an eternal perspective. It's why there's a need for an understanding of biblical suffering. It's why there's a need of how God to know that God is sovereign over all things. It's why it's important to be a part of the body of Christ and the church. These situations and many more like them, you probably know just as crazy ones in your own life. I know them in my own life. They need incredible prayer. They need an immense amount of study. And they need a tremendous amount of counsel. They should be dealt with that way. In each situation. I also want to mention here. That if you are struggling in your marriage. Or coming to a point of concern. Or fighting. Or fill in the blank. Your greatest counsel. Will most likely not come from your parents. Remember. Marriage leaves, it cleaves, and it becomes one flesh. There needs to be a separation with you and your spouse when you get married. I'm not talking writing parents off. I'm talking what's going to happen is if you bring conflict to your parents, guess what's going to happen if I go to my parents about an issue with me and Abby? More often than not, no matter how biblical or godly the parents might be, more likely than not, I will have my parents choose my side and love me and feel ill towards my wife. Same thing if Abby were to go to the Osgoods. As godly as your parents may be, they will often be biased and blurred by emotion and their desires for you. They will more often than not pin you against your spouse. And this is especially in the case of intense situations. And what happens is that many people will affirm that divorce is wrong until it affects them personally or people with whom they are close. And this is where we can often compromise biblical standards. The same goes for your friends. This is the importance of slander and gossip and understanding what it is. And this is the importance of seeking godly, wise counsel from mature men and women in the faith and from pastors and elders. I do want to note something. We began tonight with the Bible... And then we moved to where Christians agree. Finally came to disagreements. And we did all of this before we dealt with unique, crazy situations that need great discernment. There is a reason that we did this. Because we have the tendency in all things of life to start with a worldview of ourselves. Right? What happens is we're prone to cater to our needs and our situations and circumstances first. But in the context of divorce and remarriage... We especially might do this. And what often happens, especially with uh, divorce and remarriage, is we do this. You ready? But what if blank? But what if the husband's gone for two years? But what, what if the woman hasn't had sex for six years? But what if they're caught up in illegal drugs? But what if she's hitting? But what if blank? But what if blank? But what if blank? And you go on and on and on with but ifs. Far too many times. And what we must do with all things is rather than starting but with a but what ifs, we always have to start with a but God. But God said this. We cannot allow ourselves to be swayed by emotional arguments and people's stories. The, line can get, the lines can get blurry quick and it becomes a slippery slope. Once we begin with man, we will find ourselves allowing for divorce and remarriage for almost any cause. Remember, God said if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. If we acted on that sexual immorality, which the Bible calls sexual immorality, and if Jesus is saying in Matthew 19, except in the case of sexual immorality, there would be no marriages today. None. None. All marriages are full of sin because they involve the joining together of two sinners. Marriage is working through these sins. It's sanctifying one another to display the glory of God. We must approach the topic of divorce and remarriage biblically, not pragmatically. God's design for marriage is lifelong. The husband and the wife are responsible to work diligently towards a lifelong covenant that's full of grace, full of mercy, full of love. Divorce is a reality that we live with today because of sin But God hates divorce. Now, if you know your Bible, specifically your Old Testament, you might have been saying the whole time, wait a second, Dave. God divorced Israel. How can you say that God hates divorce, and that we can't be divorced, when in fact God divorced Israel, and he divorced Israel because of sexual immorality? You are correct. We see that God divorced Israel. We see this in Jeremiah 3.8. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 1, Hosea 1.9. This will also be in your notes so you can read it. But I want you to take a greater look at the metaphor here. All of these prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Hosea, reveal great restoration and reconciliation at the end. All of them, God restores, reconciles, and is faithful to his bride, it says. Every single one of them. God displays that there are consequences in these prophets of living in adultery and rejecting him. But God in his faithfulness relentlessly pursues us. He saves us and he sanctifies us. And those whom the Father has given to the Son, remember, he loses what? None. Rather, he keeps them because of his faithfulness and his eternal covenant. And he brings them to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now this is interesting. Remember, we're the bride of Christ, but the consummation of the marriage has not happened yet. The marriage supper of the land is coming. Revelation chapter 19 reveals this. We're to be prepared for this day. In some regards, we are betrothed to the Lord right now. And what is happening is you are finding out who the wolves and who the sheep are. And those who the wolves are, who appear to be part of the covenant, there's a certificate of divorce for them. God rejects them because they will not be a part of the marriage supper of the land. Their names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. But those whom are, those who are redeemed, God is faithful to them, though they are constantly unfaithful to him. John Piper says, The moment Christ divorces his church is the moment that we can divorce our spouses. And I think that's powerful. Many people today are too quick to get married and they end up being too quick to get a divorce. It happens in the church far too often. We discussed the last two weeks the importance of understanding what marriage is and then preparing for marriage appropriately. For the most part, divorce is the result of poor discipline and diligence and preparation before you came married. You probably made emotional decisions. You probably didn't seek counsel. You probably became one flesh out of marriage. You probably were leaving and cleaving before marriage. You probably thought marriage would change them, they probably profess to be believers and that was enough for you even though there wasn't much fruit. Now this isn't every situation but it is many. And what we want to do in these situations is allow for ourselves to start over or get out. We look to cater to our needs, our desires, our wants. So we will be quick to justify why we can get a divorce or remarry. We will twist scriptures often and we will seek biased counsel. But we must remember the gospel in eternity and purpose in this life. I want to finish with these closing thoughts. Thank you for your attentiveness. I know this has been long. Some of you need to know that God is sovereign over whom you are married to right now. It may not be bells and it may not be whistles. You may feel uneasy about how the marriage came to be or the fact that you are married. You may not be attracted to the person anymore. You may have serious fights You may have different worldviews. You may see things differently. You may be unequally yoked. But these are not grounds for divorce. You need to know God is sovereign over your marriage. And your chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This means, listen to me. This means God has called some people to hard marriages. Some of you will flat out be called to hard marriages. Marriages, And you remember that the purpose of marriage is to display the glory of God. And a tough marriage is able to show unique parts of God's glory and character in a way that a perfect marriage cannot. Through your faithfulness and your love towards an unloving and undeserving spouse. And to this you should cling to Romans 8.28. And you should know that God is working for your good. To this you need to cling to Matthew 25 verse 23. Know that this life and marriage may be tough, but remain faithful and you will receive your reward in heaven. So again, I ask us this question. Are we living for ourselves or are we living for the Lord? Divorce and even remarriage is often man-centered and not God-centered. You are seeking to Oftentimes, especially with remarriage, listen to me, especially with remarriage, what happens is you're often seeking to fill a void in your life. You struggle with loneliness, you struggle with depression, you struggle with poor reputation, with regrets, you struggle with the desire for kids, and many other understandable sufferings. But you seek for the remedy outside of Christ. You've been plagued by culture's mysticism of love. My question is, are these longings driving you to be remarried or divorced, Or are they driving you to Christ? In your struggle, are you reflecting someone who counts everything as loss and rubbish compared to knowing Christ? Are you reflecting someone who is joyful and suffering? Are you reflecting someone who is taking up your cross daily, denying yourself and pursuing Christ? Are you seeking your greatest joy in a spouse in this life or in Christ for all eternity? This you need to know your marriage is not about you. This you need to know. Your singleness is not about you. This you need to know. Your joy is not dependent on your marriage or your singleness. If you remember our discussion of Christian freedom last week, Christian liberty is not the license to do what you want to do, but rather Christian freedom is you being able to joyfully obey God's law and submit to His desires for you. I want to conclude tonight's discussion by saying I do indeed hold to the permanence view, and I want to explain what I mean by that. I do not believe personally that there is ever a biblical allowance for a believer to pursue divorce. I, I worded that carefully. I do not believe there is ever biblical allowance for a believer to pursue a divorce. In cases of serious harm and abuse, lack of provision and things of the like, the church should step in immediately and be the church, and be the elders, and be the pastors, and be brothers and sisters in Christ. This could mean provide housing, it could mean provide counseling, it could mean providing finances or food or anything that may be needed. Here we should also pray and fast for reconciliation. Now, if an unbeliever divorces a believing spouse there is only so much the believer can do. And I go back to sexual immorality. We have been immoral and adulterous towards God. And he's faithful to us. And our marriage is to reflect Christ in the church. I reject divorce because of sexual immorality. If an unbeliever divorces a believing spouse, I do believe, Romans twelve eighteen. there is only so much the believer could do. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. But I do believe... That that person who has been abandoned or deserted does not have the biblical allowance to remarry unless their previous spouse has died. This is not the popular view. I'm aware of that. I know the difficulties that come with it. I've not always held this standard. I wish I had studied and taken this more seriously 10 years ago when I began my ministry. Because... um, I believe that I have been sinful in my, my participation of some marriages as early as 10 years ago. Uh, I've probably been involved in about 20. And I've never been diligent and disciplined. And for that, I think it better right now not to apologize personally because I don't know what that would gain. They're in marriages or they've ended. Um but I've confessed that to the Lord and I've asked for forgiveness. And I'm grateful that he and his sovereignty has convicted me of these things now. I will say also that our elders at this church are not in unanimous agreement about permanence or permissive. And it is also important for me to communicate as I did in the beginning that this is my view. I could be wrong in some areas. There are many who are godly, far more godly than me, far more scholarly than me, that disagree with what I said tonight. And there are devastating practical implications for our views. So I say what I say cautiously, not to impose myself on you. And this is why. Because on one side, I do not want to permit people to do what God forbids and say, sure, you can get married, sure, you can get divorced. Because in that case, if the permanence view is correct... I would be sharing in the responsibility for an adulterous divorce and remarriage. Do you understand? On the flip side, I don't want to forbid people from doing that which God allows. It's tough. So where I stand is that I need to be firm in my convictions and I need to not sin against my conscience. Romans 14, 23, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And I'm grateful that I can graciously abstain from certain marriage ceremonies in the future and use as an opportunity for compassion and the gospel and Why? I praise God for the gospel which has saved all of us alike. We are all adulterers. We are all murderers. We are all thieves. We are all lighters. But we've all, in Christ, if we are in Christ, been washed, sanctified, and we will be glorified. So I leave you with 1 Peter 2, verse 16. This is important. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Tonight, when you leave, in just a moment, you're going to receive one of these. I'll have them in the back. In fact, Mike, can you come grab these for me? Oh, perfect. pick Yeah, Mike squared? This will be at the back. I encourage you to take this with you. It's a two-pager. It overviews the main points, and I also have the scriptures here. And I have takeaways, things to remember. My main, my main things I want you to remember tonight are these ending seven bullets. If you are not able to stay for small groups in a moment, I'd encourage you to go through these questions on your own, maybe with somebody else here in your own time. I'd encourage you to pray. Again, if you have questions or thoughts or things that you feel like were not covered that should have been covered, come to me, let me know. I love you all. I'm grateful for God's grace. I'm grateful that all of these discussions are temporary needs. Because one day we will be in glory and there will be no need for any of this. That will be a good day. So let's pray. And then those of you who can stay for small groups will come on up. And those of you who need to leave can leave. Father, what we need is your truth. Not a Dave Aubrey truth. Not a John Piper truth. Not a John MacArthur truth. Not a John or a Newheiser, Jim Newheiser, truth. Not any of our own personal presuppositions and maybe false ways of thinking. So what I'm asking is that you would take the discussion tonight, that you would cause us to be diligent in our study. I pray that there would be no pointed fingers. I pray there would be no shame and guilt. That if there is a need to repent and confess sin and be restored, that People would willingly and humbly do that before you. I pray that we would have a high respect for marriage. I pray, Lord, that for the coming generations of our children, that this would in many ways be an irrelevant discussion because we have put in the work as parents and as youth and young adults to date biblically and to seek godly counsel and to see marriage with a biblical worldview, and therefore that marriage would be all that you have created it and commanded it to be for your glory. I pray, Father, um, as we move on to the rest of the subjects and discussions in the, re- the remainder of the year, that you would be glorified and exalted, that you would lead us into truth the way of everlasting joy. Be with the discussion tonight with small groups. pray that it would be fruitful and encouraging. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.